0: How does Invesco QQQ rethink possibility? By rethinking access to innovation and the NASDAQ 100. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas.
2: Eric, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary. It's crazy. It We've just by. We've been doing this by. for a year. Yeah, I know. What do, how are
1: we going to celebrate? <laughs> a little date night? 80s maybe, movie? Yeah, yeah, 80s movie, some dinner, maybe, uh, I don't know, who knows where it might go. Okay, bef-
2: whoa, <laughs> that got weird. Before we before we
1: celebrate that though, I feel like we've talked a lot about a lot of corners of the ETF world except for one. Yeah, we are squeezing in the one thing we haven't talked about just in the nick of time for this whole year. And, before and then, date night, yeah. But and then we will have I think official officially covered everything at least once. And this is market making. What is that? So market making. You know, I equate market making to sort of the oil, the oil that keeps the whole machine running, or to to bring it to a much more broader reference is McDonald's. Market makers are basically providing Happy Meals all day long. <laughs> they are just churning out customers. In fact, if you look at the total amount of ETF trading over 25 years since they came out, it's about $200 trillion worth of trades. The average trade size is about $20,000. That means there's been 10 billion ETF trades. And that 10 billion trades is countered with maybe... 30,000, 40,000 sort of issues where there was a problem with a trade. So you compare those two numbers. That's why I think these market makers and, and how they give everyone a happy meal, everybody's happy, is why I think ETFs are largely immune from the attacks, the criticism, and the worries. It's because the customers come in, get their happy meal, they're like, I'm, I, that was fine with me. But the happy meal actually was all about the toy. <laughs> Is there a was, toy in this metaphor? Well, I don't know. My son loves uh, the Nuggets. The uh, nuggets? Yeah, oh, he yeah. likes. And now the, they and now they have take the toy. Yeah, and my wife makes him get the apples, yeah. which she does not eat. Yeah, yeah. not so happy.
2: <laughs> Joining us on this episode, Annie Massa, who's a reporter with the Bloomberg News Investing Team. She just wrote a story called "Raising the Stakes" in the latest issue of Bloomberg Markets. That's about one of the most famous market makers, which we'll get into. And also Chris Hinstead, who's the head of ETF sales at Deutsche Bank. This week on Trillions, let's make a market. Annie, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Annie, thanks. raising the stakes, what's this story about?
3: This story is about a firm called Susquehanna, and it's been around in the ETF market-making ecosystem for a really long time. And How, how long? Um, well, the firm was founded in 1987, so that was before you even had ETFs in the U.S., And they were founded as an options trading firm, and they're still huge in options. But very early on in the timeline of ETFs, they got into ETF trading before it was even a thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, before it was cool. And they've really survived as an independent, proprietary market maker. um,
2: Closely held.
3: Closely held. Yep.
2: Highly secretive.
3: And very secretive for for all these years. And they've really become uh, one of the biggest market makers of ETFs in the U.S. and in the world.
1: And and let me just jump in here. Susquehanna, a lot of people may not have ever even heard of them. Yeah. Jane Street is another one. You add it up and a good chunk of all the ETF market making, which is, you know, matching buyers and sellers and whatnot, happens through companies that are not large investment banks. Some investment banks do it, but I think that's interesting. Did you, uh, h- how did you uh, look into that?
3: Yeah, I wanted to address that in the story because investment banks, especially since the 2008 crisis, have kind of stepped back from playing some of these key roles in the ETF ecosystem. And since then, um, there's been even more runway for these smaller prop firms to uh, get involved. And, and they've stepped in to fill the void in some
2: ways. And when you say prop, what does that mean
3: um they're they're trading with their own capital,
2: right, which is something that banks used to be able to do and can no longer, and that's one of the reasons that they've filled this void so well exactly so there's a certain uh game that um, people who work in market making are very good at, and you learned a little bit more about that what's what's the game?
3: Yes, it is poker, and especially at Susquehanna, this has always been true. Um, They love Texas Hold'em. They have an annual No Limit Texas Hold'em championship basically every year. Their traders are trained in poker. And the idea is that they wanted – first of all, the founders all like met in college at SUNY Binghamton, and they all like to play cards together. But they – quickly found out that they could apply some of the same skills to financial markets.
2: It almost sounds like a dream where we're like going to go to college, play poker all the time and then say like, okay, how do we take our poker skills and get a job?
3: I know and and found a firm that will go on to be very successful, you know,
2: and make <laughs> millions and millions of dollars.
3: Exactly. So, I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable and um and so they've kept this program of training their traders with poker and other kinds of games too. They even have like they have a gaming blog like on strategy for everything from like scrabble to you know any kind of game that you could imagine. So they yeah, they love gaming there but especially poker.
2: Why is poker a significant game and how does it relate to ETFs?
3: So the idea is they they see poker as a great game that allows you to kind of practice making decisions in uncertain circumstances, probability-based decisions in uncertain circumstances. And that mindset applies to financial markets too, because you know, obviously you don't have control over all the other whims of the market, but you can make these like probability-based decisions in those kinds of uncertain circumstances.
1: And Susquehanna particularly is the sort of original firm. And it's kind of been like a farm team, a farm league for Superstars that have gone off and gone to other firms in the in the market making business, right? It's sort of like BlackRock is like that on the issuer side. You go to a lot of ETF firms uh, issuers. uh, A lot of them are like, yeah, I used to work at BlackRock, and Susquehanna is kind of like that for the market making side. Is that right?
3: Yeah. The way I was thinking about it is, it's almost like a diaspora of people who just have spread out from Susquehanna as their home base. And by the way, people stay there for a long time too, typically. And they really cut their teeth there. And then the people who have left have risen to the top at other notable uh, market making firms. And, and one of the ones that I mentioned in the story is Jane Street, which is now a very, I mean, a very fierce rival of Susquehanna's, was founded by three ex-Susquehanna guys.
1: And another ex-Susquehanna guy sitting right here. Who's <laughs> <All laughs> right. in the right, article, another right? notable right. One. <laughs> is, Yep.
2: My <laughs> opening question for you, Chris, is how good at poker are you? i am not
4: uh, I am not necessarily a good poker player. How did would, you get through the system? but I would sit in that tournament every year. you know <laughs> every every employee <laughs> plays at least one hand, and I would certainly try to compete with the with the brightest of the firm and and last as long as I could, but uh easier said than done so w- you started at Susquehanna right so i'm a, myself and and others like me when we came into Susquehanna were brought into the firm because they started to trade more ETFs, which were different than their core business prior to that, which was options trading. ETFs trade more like a stock, uh, but they're derivative in nature. And so operators like myself uh, in the equity world would come up and apply some of our equity trading background to this derivatively backed equity-like product on the American Stock Exchange. And we were Originally, I kind of hired clerks, hired guns, in a sense, to operate the display book, which not many people know what that is, but it's back when the, the trading was done on the floor of the stock exchange. So and this is like mid-'90s? This is uh, mid and late-'90s yeah. um, is when that sort of started to, to really pick up, especially in the late-'90s, with the listing of the QQQ on the American Stock Exchange in March of '99. Right, And uh, after that, it was pretty much hockey stick growth and activity. And And we were very lucky, I think. Uh, a lot of the, the folks in, in in the role that I was in, a lot of my peers at Susquehanna and other firms like uh, Spearleads & Kellogg, which was later acquired by Goldman Sachs, um, and there's, there's several firms from the American Stock Exchange era that did these kind of ETF and option trading market-making operations. They all needed operators. And our job was very unique and very different. And most of us survived uh, the post-stock market, you know, the post-stock exchange trading world, and were able to take what we learned from working with, with really bright people at SIG and Spearleads and other places and apply that in other places because the ETF industry was growing so fast, you know, as the market structure changed, uh, there, was a, there was a significant need for people who understood the product and understood the, the math behind it. And if you could go somewhere and apply that, there was, there was a job for you.
2: So Eric says making markets is like serving Happy
4: Meals. How would you describe it? <laughs> um, well, it depends on, it depends on where, we're, where we're cooking, I guess, or where we're serving. So, you know, we, we always make it a point to differentiate between the most widely held and most widely trafficked in products. So you think SPY, EEM, IWM, there's the, uh, GLD. These are the, the most active by notional volume, the most active uh, by trading volume in many cases, um, and the most widely held across the you know across the investment universe those products the the ther- the term market making is not is applicable to those. It's not something that a, a traditional market maker would need to step in and say, oh, in the absence of buyers, I can be a seller. In the absence of sellers, I can be a buyer, or something along those, or, 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 let me flip that. In the absence of sellers, I can sell, and in the absence of buyers, I can buy. That's traditionally what a market maker does. A market maker uh, injects liquidity into the market when it's needed, and sits on the sideline when it's not needed, and when it's not needed is when buyers and sellers meet naturally in the market. The thing about ETFs that's unique is that there's, what, Eric, there's 2,230-something ETFs today in the U.S.? I think
1: 20, about 2,200, exactly. Yeah, so it's something
4: right around there. And that super liquid, widely held, or high volume and and widely trafficked in ETF list is really only like 100, sometimes 200 names on any given day. That means there's the better part of 2,000 products that don't trade – a buyer to seller naturally in the market in most cases. And the further down that list you go, the more likely it is that any transaction in the market, a buy or a sell, is most likely, more likely than not, going to transact with a market maker. Because the the odds of the four of us sitting at this table as retail investors trading with one another in ETF rank number 1,000, whatever product that is, Mm -hmm. is so low that the quote you see on the screen on whatever exchange or on all the exchanges is probably being provided by a market maker in anticipation of potentially someone buying or selling that product.
1: So let's just try to visualize this. On any given day, people are putting in orders for SPY or IVV or HYG. And that order is being matched electronically on the exchange for the most part. And market makers are not needed for those transactions. They, you, put it, you can put it in a market order, right? Just give me the this ETF at the best available price for the top hundred then below that is when you know the spreads are a little wider, meaning the price that someone would buy it for versus sell it right and that's when a market maker might step in and make a market in those products
4: yeah i mean i I wouldn't necessarily say that the spread widens out although you can definitely make the argument that the less active a name is or the and the less um, the less that people are using it that it would it would seem to indicate it would be a wider spread, but not always the case. I think it's it's more it's the increased likelihood that you're not going to be transacting with somebody natural, with somebody who, who happens to be selling when you're buying or buying when and you're selling. You guys
1: call those naturals, right? Yes, we yeah. do. That's yeah. when the buyer-seller or or matches and you don't, you're not involved and that's, that's just a, a natural. No need for us. In what? the real
4: estate market, imagine if you're in a grocery store and the buyer of a house and the seller of a house just meet and the broker's standing there <laughs> saying, what the heck? Yeah. What yeah. just <laughs> happened? Well, I, guess we I don't get 3% you? still? <laughs> no, you may not. <laughs>
1: What percent of the daily trading volume in ETFs, which is about, let's say, 50 billion or something?
4: It's even, it's, I think it's been north of that. October, we were seeing north of $100 billion a yeah, day. Yeah, that
1: was volatile times. They definitely, but on average, let's say 50, 60 a day, mm-hmm. right? What percentage of that is naturals versus market makers? I'm
4: going it's, it's probably going to be north of 80% um, naturals. In other words, and, and by the way, that does not mean that it, in that natural, all right, that's going to include some high-frequency traders, right? Because they're not really market-making. They're just, you know, they're they're trading. They have strategies and and algorithms. Other hedge funds and institutions might use these products as hedges. They're naturals. Um, Even though it might not be part of their investment philosophy, they're using the product in a natural way. For for what we're talking about today, market-making is more in the traditional sense, hey, can I come to you and ask you for a bid or an offer at any time of the day, and you'll make one for me. That's the more traditional sense, and yet, yeah, I would guess it's way under twenty percent of the of the volume on any given day. Is is that um, now? There's something that's changed also in in the last couple of years, and there's there's new technologies that these trading firms that we all our orders eventually at at Schwab or TD or wherever might wind up on a trading desk somewhere if it if it meets some metric. And that's going to go out into what we call RFQ. You know, Bloomberg has an RFQE technology.
1: Although I'll, that's request for quote, yeah. right? And that's just where you go out there, request for quote, and it goes out and finds comp- it, it. It surveys all the market makers to get the best price, right? That's right. And that's well, the ones that are enabled, right? Is it, so? Right. It's it's
4: the you know, look. I mean, there's there's probably little less than ten market making firms that are in in most of the RFQ wheels. Um, so it's not a, a wildly Competitive market in terms of the numbers, but it is incredibly competitive in terms of the margins. Um, the pricing today in ETFs has never been better in terms of the efficient you know pricing that people are getting in the secondary market. But th- when they go out and do this, that's so if if someone was to transact in a block of an ETF that trades once a week, that's probably going to be a market maker providing liquidity. Okay. Um, those volumes because their blocks can can be a little bit higher, and that might be where most of that market maker activity in terms of notional volume exists. When I talk about that, you know, what doesn't go natural natural um, is probably in block liquidity.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all in one fund so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
2: margins though being as thin as they are brings it back to poker a little bit because the strategy at susquehanna at least it seems is rather than trying to get these big one-time payouts it's just like eke out the pennies and then that pile of pennies happens to actually be worth a lot of money
4: yeah i mean i, I don't want to answer you know for what what sig does you know for their strategies but i can tell you that what's great about ets and what uh, the world needs to continually be reminded of is these are transparent wrappers these are transparent vehicles they on a daily basis provide us with what their holdings file uh, is what what's in their holdings file and also what's needed for creation and redemption so most of the time the products the 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 kind of products that are within an ETF whether it's a, whether it's futures whether it's swap whether it's equities or bonds there's price discovery mechanisms for market makers to go and figure out what the ingredients are worth. So Eric talks about making a Happy Meal. Well, imagine if McDonald's had 2,000 different kinds of Happy Meals. But I work in the kitchen, and I have all the ingredients that I need. And so when you order Happy Meal number 1732, I simply pull up the recipe, the holdings file. And I look and I say, well, how much is it going to cost me to buy these ingredients and put it in the Happy Meal box and deliver it back to you? So if I look and I get I, my computer, it's all preloaded every night. We have really sharp people that download that stuff. And I put it up 1700 and whatever. And it says, okay, I'm going to need these 30 different ingredients and it's going to cost me $25 to make this Happy Meal. Well, that's my break-even price. Right, so I'm probably going to offer you the happy meal at twenty five dollars and a penny, right? So, or and this is just for example purposes only, but that's that's the mentality behind Mark making an expensive
1: $2. happy meal. Yeah, pricey happy yeah. meal. Better be a good toy. Uh, in yeah, in that, there. yeah. That well that one be, had, that, had, that toy better mm, be illegal. That one had ca- uh, caviar and saffron. Oh, right. yeah. So you know, <laughs> um, it, and I, this is a really. I just want to stop here for a second because what you're tapping into is something we've built a lot in the terminal, which is implied liquidity, Mm -hmm. which is when you talk about the top uh, 15 most traded ETFs account for half of all volume, then the other 2150 or whatever are fighting over the rest. And a lot of them get ignored because people are used to stocks where the volume on the screen is all there is. But with an ETF, you can punch up the recipe. In other words, you can use the volume of the underlying stocks. So for example, if we pull up something like uh, the PowerShares, S&P high quality ETF, which isn't one of the more popular quality factor ETFs. I think it might trade 40,000 shares a day, right. but the implied liquidity says 51 million shares could be created on the spot because that recipe is liquid. Is that essentially the key to unlocking the toolbox and using some of these lesser, uh, lesser traded products that might be a better fit? Because people do tend to lean on these ones that came out in the 90s that trade a lot.
4: Yeah, I mean it. It's it is. It just remember, if you're a user of ETFs, you don't have to worry so much about having the toolbox or the key. It's it's more important for you to trust that your broker and the person you're working with for these executions in the Invesco, you know, high quality uh, uh, index that they have the key in the toolbox. And basically what we're going to be looking at is maybe we're not going to do a 40 million share trade. We'd love to do that, right? But if someone comes in and says, hey, there's 40,000 shares that trade on a daily basis and we want to buy a million shares, what we're looking at as a market maker, as a liquidity provider, is we're looking at can I access the ingredients of that fund without moving the market? Am I I going to be able to reasonably obtain all the ingredients that I need at a reasonable or at least a – some sort of a confident price level. Anything outside of that, we would call, in the old world, we'd call that slippage. I thought I could buy it for 25 and when I went to actually buy all the ingredients, the price moved, I actually impacted the market, and it came out to 25 And I would say to my boss, look, I thought I could... Buy the ingredients for twenty five, it wound up costing me twenty five oh five. And he'd say, Well, where'd you sell the happy meal? And I'd say twenty-five oh one. Guess what? I lost. Right? That's where the betting and gambling kind of mentality will be associated with market making. So market makers generally don't make that mistake. Okay. They're they're actually doing, you know, pre trade analytics and they they have a very good, high confidence in in how much they can buy at at what price level, how much they think they're going to move the market given a certain size. We love to talk about implied liquidity. We love to talk about if I was to do a million shares of this ETF, it could be 10,000% of a day's volume. Of the ETF itself, but it can be one tenth of one percent of the underlying portfolio. And that's what we want people to remember. If your broker and your and your trading partner has the tools and the toolbox to to view that as one tenth of one percent of the underlying liquidity, well then you should expect you know, pricing that's reflective of that.
3: What does it take to be good at that? Because it strikes me that there are very few ETF market-making firms that that are actually really good. Like, one thing that I heard when I was reporting on that story is, you know, the volume of ETF trading and the number of ETFs has has just gone up and up and up, and the number of really strong ETF market-makers has stayed small. So what does it take to be, like, a good ETF market-maker?
4: I mean, (laughs) there... There are the, the when you talk about the spies and the IWMS and the QQQs, it's a different. It's a different trading strategy. It's a different sort of mentality. Again, you're not expecting to be able to sell QQQ and then buy the underlying Nasdaq 100 names um, at a at a material discount to where you sold the ETF. That just doesn't happen. Um, it's so efficient those products, but. When you, the competitive field that we're talking about is what does it take to be competitive in that Invesco product? What does it take for someone to be able to compete with five other market makers and provide the best price at ridiculously low margins? So, you know, you're talking about fractions of a penny in many cases, uh, depending on the size of the trade. It takes a lot. <laughs> technology is a big part of it. And data, it, data within that technology is also a big part of it. So you've got to have access to the, to the information of the ETFs, and there's 2,200 and some ETFs. So it's a lot of information that you're pulling in every night. You've got to be able to apply market data to all of the underlying instruments. And there's, you know, gosh knows how many different equities in the ETF universe and over 5,000 and how many different bonds, probably well over 10,000. I mean, there's so much data, uh, and it has to be constantly updated and it has to be constantly monitored and maintained. And When you get it all right in a perfect world, right, and you've got all the data and you've got all the recipes and your computers are humming and everyone's happy and everything looks great, all the lights are green, it's pretty easy, actually. You look it up and someone pulls up a ticker and they say, can I get a price on it? You pull it up and you've got your highly confident pricing that you you can provide to your clients and they love your pricing and they trade with you. But what happens when one of the data feeds goes down? What happens when there's a corporate action that didn't get picked up by the issuer, but did get picked up by the distributor. And there's a difference in information. Because with, I don't know how many, a hundred unique issuers and gosh knows how many different custodial banks and distributors, we're getting information from a lot of different unique sources every single day. Normalizing it is a massive task, right? And so it requires investment, it requires confidence. It requires really, really smart people you know, who know how to code um, so that at any given time when the light goes from green to red and says, look here, something's amiss, you can get to that very quickly, You know, adjust your formula, adjust whatever input is, is questionable, and get back to business. Is there but, really
2: a light that goes from green to red? <laughs> okay,
4: Actually, I can wait, either, wait, I can either confirm it. or deny <laughs> the existence of a red light, green light, yellow light. <laughs>
1: I want to ask about SPHQ. That's that high quality It doesn't trade a lot. Say an order comes in for this. I've always found I found this kind of fascinating when I learned it. When when it's not a natural and somebody wants SPHQ, um, you cannot find a natural buy order for or to sell order to buy it. Right. That's right. So you got to look at the recipe. You give them the SPHQ immediately for a certain price. Mm-hmm. Then what happens, right? You don't actually have SPHQ yet. You no. have to go. Take the raw materials, the recipe, hand it into PowerShares or the AP, and then get SPHQ to make yourself even. Walk us through that, sure. that process and how long it takes. So
4: it's important for everyone to realize that your your trading counterparties and these ETFs, especially SPHQ, are most likely licensed to create or manufacture shares when they're needed. And issuers don't like to hear this, but they're also licensed to destroy or redeem. Okay, shares when there's too much supply, uh, the the ability to create this is the magic of this the is ETF. the magic of the ETF arbitrage the ETF ecosystem. It's called being an authorized participant. Um, whether you're directly an authorized participant or indirectly through your clearing bank is it's important, but. If you have the ability to manufacture or destroy, create or redeem ETF shares, when you come in and buy SPHQ from us and we don't have shares and there's no borrow, by the way, most of the 2200 and change ETFs, there is no borrow on them, right? So most of the time, if you're buying these and in a material way, a market maker is going to probably have to create shares to settle that trade. So in SPHQ, you come in, you buy a million shares, and I'm going to turn around, buy the ingredients of the fund. Now I'm going to take those ingredients, deliver them to PowerShares. PowerShares is going to say thank you very much in return for those securities, which they're going to put into the ETF trust, which is their own unique ETF trust protected. And they're going to give me back a million ETF shares of SPHQ, which I'm going to deliver right back to the client. So the round trip is, what are the ingredients? I go out and get them. I put them into the Happy Meal. You give the Happy Meal to the client. And this is happening in in like... Fractions of a second. I mean, the 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 process of doing the trade with the client and buying the underlying portfolio, yes, it could be a fraction of a second. There may be times where we choose to go out and buy the ingredients of an ETF over a longer period of time. When you look at the high-yield bond market or investment-grade bonds or maybe some frontier markets, it might take longer to go out and buy the actual underlying securities. You might want to be a little more thoughtful in how you go about getting it. But but essentially, yes, you, you trade the ETF and then you get the ingredients and then you do the creation. The back
2: office kicks in. So because market making is so secretive, it leads me to it leads me to believe that it's highly lucrative as well. How lucrative actually is it? I don't
4: I don't think it's secretive. I don't. I. I be, anyone can go to an issuer's website. The great thing also about the U.S. ETF marketplace is that to be listed on an exchange in the United States with, for an ETF, you need to have a website. You need to have information available for people to go and look. If your website's not available, you're not in compliance. Um, on the websites, you'll find the holdings file. So anyone can look at the holdings file, figure out what's in it, figure out what the weights are, um, or not even figure it out, just Download the data, and and then figure out what it costs to assemble that portfolio, and 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 in turn, what's a fair price for this ETF? That is the secret sauce. That's not so secret, mm. right? It never is. The competitive right? edge is it's it's actually how mayonnaise
2: yes. and ketchup. But well, here's it's a, the, here's the
1: convenience a, factor because you could you could basically copy an ETF every day and not have to pay the issuer the expense ratio, or uh, do oh, the trade. Then you then you can have just, to manage it too, though. Right? Then, you know, and and look, there's. I always like to sit sit down yeah. with
4: clients, sit down with users, explain how it works, show them how to do it. They get that moment of clarity. They get that moment, that, that eureka moment, like, I get it. And then they, and they also, at the same time, realize, that's a lot of work. I don't want to <laughs> do that. Yeah. And, and what <laughs> they really, really want is, can you, do, do you have a system that does that a lot faster and a lot more efficiently? And. Yeah. And the, you know, the 10 market-making firms you, you, know, you allude to where this, the ETF industry has grown and the market-making community has just gotten faster, not necessarily bigger, that's ultimately the answer. So, so while the sauce is not so secret, the way that people cook things is a little bit proprietary, right? Has it evolved,
3: though, like where you have some market maker, like if you're just making markets and ETFs on exchanges, like you don't really have to tell anybody anything about what you're doing or how you're doing it. But if you have clients who are coming directly to you and trying to do ETF trades, like then you kind of have to open yourself up a little bit more, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, we... Me personally, I've, I've sort of migrated from the trading world into more of an educational, client-facing world. I love when they ask questions about how and why we price things the way we do. I love to tell them what we're thinking. I love to tell them how much we think we're going to need to make or how much we're going to have to price things uh, to make it worth our while to do the trade or to get into business. Unfortunately, not a lot of people ask those questions all the time. There are people who come in and just trust you know how to do it, and you get the order, and they move on. If you're always giving them good, fair pricing, and you continue to get that business, they may not ask every time how you came up with the price. But I, I do enjoy when people engage, because it, it gives me hope that... Because they're asking questions, they're probably looking at other products. A lot of people will only look at those top 50, those top 100 products because they're easy to trade. But they don't really add a whole lot of value in terms of an investment mandate, right? And so when they, when they come up with SPHQ and they come in and they say, hey, can you tell me about this product? I want to get on the phone. I want to spend an hour with them. I say, this is what's cool about this product. This is why PowerShares loves it. This is why we can make a market in it. And others can probably too. This is what we would consider a fair level, you know, for this, you know, transacting within these bands, you can never lose to asking questions and, and learning more, I think. It gives you the confidence to take that next step and buy that product you would never heard of. And guess what? You know, you're going to be the cool kid on the block who owns the product no one else does.
1: And I, 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 based on lucrative, I, I will address that a little bit. We've looked into the revenue of the ETF world. We track it. Um, issuers make about $7 billion a year. That is not much. I mean... That's on the issuer side. Active mutual funds make you know four or five times that amount on the same amount of assets. Market makers make about half of the 7000000000 billion. We've calculated about $3.5 billion. And that's on an average spread of 0.015%. So we're talking razor-thin margins. It's actually not that lucrative. Most of the ETF industry has to really live um, frugally and be scrappy. It's not like the old Wall Street. I, f- I find that's why it's so popular, because everybody comes in and feels like they got a good deal. Okay, so... I have
2: one more question what 's your favorite
4: ticker what 's my favorite ticker? Oh my goodness <laughs> oh man well i gotta say i mean two thousand and eighteen um, i uh, there's a there's an e t f called r v r s reverse and uh i actually i, I just think it 's a really neat thing there's what 's in that it's it- well there's s and p five hundred market cap s p y and then there's r s p which I loved for a long long time. I love equal weight. Uh, S&P 500, I, I personally, you know, personally, from my account, I'm like, I like equal weight better than market cap weight. And then um, these folks invented RVRS, and it's, it's reverse cap weight. And, reverse and if you think of it as yeah. a triangle, cap I'm, I'm yeah. drawing a triangle on a podcast. Apple is the lowest weighting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I wow. I like the idea. <laughs> I, I just, and a ticker and a ticker serves it well. RVRS, reverse. That's a great one <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think they used the Uno card, the reverse Uno card to market the product. It was pretty good. It's neat. Although awesome. they have beer glasses, but they I told them that the top should be small and it should widen out. They You're going to get, get me in a ton of, of trouble
4: with that question because like, that was on the spot. I didn't know it was coming. And 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 I'm sure they're going to be That's psyched that I did answer. it. But you know, I'll get one really great phone call from that. They'll be like, thanks so much yeah. for yeah. saying that. And I'm going to get a hundred. Yeah. Like, why didn't you mention mine? <laughs> you
2: There's so me.
4: many. There's so many good tickets. Eric, I
2: want to say, I didn't forget about you. Happy anniversary.
1: Happy anniversary, Joel.
2: Chris, Annie. Thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank thanks. you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to us on Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and basically anywhere else you want to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. Annie's at Antonia B. Massa. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye.
0: How does Invesco QQQ rethink possibility? By rethinking access to innovation and the NASDAQ 100. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.